ज्योतिर्गमय मृत्युर्मात गमय ओ शाति 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 ओम लीडर्स फ्रॉम द अनरियल टू द रियल लीडर्स फ्रॉम डार्कनेस अंटू लाइट लीडर्स फ्रॉम डेथ टू इमोटैलिटी ओम every you know q and a session on spiritual uh, spiritual matters and that is the subject for today's talk meditate better it actually comes out of something that arjuna asks krishna in the bhagavad gita in the 6th chapter of the bhagavad gita arjuna asks this very question to krishna the 6th chapter of the bhagavad gita is about meditation dhyana yoga the yoga of meditation and after krishna teaches this in pretty good detail actually uh, arjuna pops this question he says that whatever you have taught o krishna i don't think it's practical is he he's a practical man he's a warrior and he's about to be engaged in some very nasty business of war and uh, philosophy no matter how subtle uh, spiritual sentiments no matter how noble Uh, techniques no matter how sophisticated unless they work uh, unless they give results he is very american that way very pragmatic uh, he is not uh, all that interested he says that uh, o oh krishna this yoga that you have taught me i don't see it, it working because uh, you know the mind is fickle the mind is uh, it it is subject to con- continuous change ups and downs so he asks this question how do you settle the mind down otherwise whatever you're teaching is um is not practical by the way what did he teach the word yoga just a little side note here in america and most of the western world and in, now in india also we yoga there's no such word in english in in sanskrit or in an indian language there's no yoga it is the original sanskrit word is yoga and you don't have to go that far people will look at you weirdly if you say yoga <laughs> uh, but the correct pronunciation would be uh, yoga a uh, not a uh, yoga in hindi you'd say yog in bengali yog but never yoga so what is this yoga which the spiritual path yoga is a spiritual path what exactly did krishna teach arjuna before we dive into the subject it's good to get some perspective of what krishna was teaching and this is of course i'm speaking entirely from the perspective of advaita vedanta non dual vedanta krishna was not teaching the yoga of devotion to arjuna you see these schools 
meditation, devotion, of uh, action, the schools of the ancient schools of Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, Yoga, Purva Mimamsa. These are not Vedanta, these are not Advaita. In fact, these are what are called Purva Paksha for Advaita. A lot of effort is spent by the Advaita masters in cutting down the conclusions of these schools. The Nyaya school, it teaches devotion and surrender to God. That is not Advaita. Somebody trained in Indian philosophy might object at this point and say, where do you get that from the ancient school of Nyaya? We know the metaphysics and logic of Nyaya. Well, it is a devotional school because uh, if you see the later dualistic Vedanta schools, Dvaita Vedanta, Shuddha Dvaita Vedanta and others, which are devotional. If you open up the box and see how the, the workings inside, the machinery inside, the metaphysics and logic, they're all entirely borrowed from Nyaya. And see, the, the dualistic schools, the theistic schools are basically the metaphysics and logic of Nyaya, Vaisheshika, with an overlay of theism, of devotion. So the Nyaya Vaisheshika school, which says God exists, and ultimately by surrender to God, by devotion to God, you will attain freedom. Not Advaita. We do not agree. The ancient school of, uh, of yoga, by which I mean Patanjali Yoga, uh, it says that uh, by the restraint of the modifications of the mind, hold the mind back, tie down the mind, so that by the calmness of the mind, absolute cessation of the movements of the mind, the separation of the self from material nature, you will see that uh, in Asampragyata Samadhi, the deepest possible Samadhi. See, what's wrong with that? Not Advaita Vedanta. <laughs> no. Brahma Sutras, um, Shankaracharya clearly explains, Etena Yoga Pratyuktaha. By these arguments are set aside the ancient school of yoga taught, taught by Patanjali. Don't be disturbed by all this I'm saying. I'm going to take it all back very soon. But right now, let's see. Even Sankhya, the ancient school of Sankhya, which seems closest to Advaita Vedanta, what does it say? This vast world which you see, the material world, a mass of change, it's an object. And you are the witness thereof. You are pure consciousness, without limit. And um, uh, you are unchanging. And this entire world is a material world, an object, and apart from you. Consciousness and matter are different. Purusha and Prakriti are different. This distinction, this discernment is the key to your liberation. Self, not self. Um, I often talk about Drik Drishya Viveka, the, the discernment, the separation of the seer from the seen. You say, yeah, that seems like Advaita Vedanta. No, it isn't. <laughs> Advaita Vedanta, in fact, they spend more time in cutting down the school of Sankhya rather than any, um, any other school. Because it, in some sense, it is the closest to Advaita. It's not Sankhya. It is not Purva Mimamsa. Advaita Vedanta is entirely based on the Vedas, on the Upanishadic portion of the Vedas. And yet, the, the previous portion of the Vedas, the ritualistic portion, where you perform good actions in this world and devout actions and, you know, and by the merit gained by these actions, we hope to gain a good life in this, in this world and in the next world and in the next birth. Purva Mimamsa, the way of uh, sacred action, not Advaita. 
None of these are Advaita. These are what constitute the Purva Paksha, the opponent, the, the, those schools which are different from Advaita in their ultimate conclusions. And Advaita Vedanta sets them aside firmly. Then what is, it, what is the yoga taught by Krishna to Arjuna? What does it say then? What is Advaita? And just before the question asked by Arjuna, Krishna had taught the, the climax of this path he is teaching Arjuna. And he says, Sarvabhutasthamatmanam sarvabhutani chatmani ikshate yoga yuktatma sarvatra samadarshana. You see, the, your, the self in all beings, in everything in the world you see yourself. And all things in this world, the entire universe you see in yourself. You in everything else and everything else in you. And the one who is centered in yoga, the one who is established in yoga, sees this same radiant divinity everywhere. Sarvatra Samadarshana. Not as a sentiment that everything is God. No. Sees. Ikshate. Sees. Sees with the eye of wisdom. Not with these eyes. These eyes reveal difference. You are all different from me. Different from each other. You are all sentient beings and is sitting on the chair which is different um, from you. And sentient, insentient. And there are millions of entities around the world. The differences are revealed by these eyes. The eye of wisdom, the eye of non-dual wisdom reveals one radiant divinity as a matter of, I can say, roughly experience. This is deeper than experience. And Sri Ramakrishna said to the young Naren, Vivekananda, you know, who came to him, do you see God? And he says, yes, as I see you, only more clearly. What is that only more clearly? Does Sri Ramakrishna need glasses? No. By the eye of wisdom, you see something deeper, which makes all experience possible. You see, uh, consciousness, it is more evident than anything revealed by consciousness. If that makes sense. You are that awareness which makes possible the entire the experience of what you call life. And that awareness, that being, that presence by which everything is possible, that is more, more evident, more direct, let us say, than everything else. That's what I mean. So you see that same radiance, same divinity everywhere. This oneness of existence. Vivekananda called it the divinity within and the oneness of all existence. This is the teaching. This is the yoga. This is Advaita Vedanta, which Krishna is teaching uh, Arjuna. This is the core message. Not the restraint of the mind. Not that there is a separate divinity which has to be worshipped and appeased and loved and surrendered to. Not that you have to engage in ceaseless actions to generate good karma and go from life to life and birth to birth and death to death. No. Not even the separation of the witness consciousness from the external world. Not even that. Not Nyaya, Vaisheshika, not Sankhya, not Yoga, not Purva Mimamsa, but Advaita Vedanta. This is the Yoga which Krishna teaches Arjuna. Now let me take it all back, whatever I've said just now. Yeah, because all this can be shocking and disturbing. This is, Swami, this is all that we are trying to do in our lives. And you're saying this is not the teaching of Vedanta, that's what we have been trying to do for so many years. All of it is there. You see, if it's not the teaching of um, Krishna to Arjuna, but clearly in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna teaches devotion. Krishna teaches meditation. Krishna teaches the discernment of the self and the not-self. Atma, Atma, Viveka. All of that is taught. Krishna teaches a moral and ethical life above all. All of those are helpful, are indeed essential as the foundation 
for the Advaitic insight of the one divinity everywhere. These are the components in a grand structure built up by Krishna pointing to the divinity. That one, one radiant divinity everywhere, the oneness of all existence. Without these, that insight is not possible. These are preparatory, these are preliminary, these are foundational. One must have an ethical life. Without that uh, enlightenment, spirituality is not possible without morality. One must have meditation. Uh, without the calmness of mind, this will not work. One must, of course, discern the witness consciousness from everything else. Unless you disentangle, we disentangle consciousness in our own understanding from all that it is mixed up with. Unless we do that, nothing else will work. That one divinity everywhere will remain a, like a slogan, will remain rhetoric, will remain a nice sentiment. So all of it, karma, bhakti, uh, yoga, by yoga I mean meditation, raja yoga. All the yogas are um, all part of the path shown by Krishna. They are all components of the structure, the technology being built up by Krishna. But the teaching is to see the same divinity everywhere, in all beings, living and non-living. That which is within is also outside. That which you discover with eyes closed in the deepest meditation is also what you see, exactly what you see, with eyes open and engaged with the world. That which you see in the waking world here, the same reality which shines forth in your world of dreams. The same reality which shines forth but unmanifest in the world of deep sleep. In the physical, in the subtle, in the causal, all are appearances of sa the same underlying reality. Vivekananda put it very well. He said, one only exists. It appears as nature and soul. Nature means universe, soul, you. Only, but it's one, underlying, there's one underlying reality. Meister Eckhart's beautiful, um, not Eckhart Tolle, Meister Eckhart, 500 years ago. Uh, his wonderful statement, the ground of my soul and the ground of God are the same ground. It's the same, the same meaning as that thou art, tattvamasi. So that is the yoga that is being taught by Krishna. Arjuna, at this point, would have given a dry smile and uh, would have said, thank you for the philosophy lecture, but I'm still not convinced. It doesn't work. That's my object, um, my, my objection. It's all wonderful, um, as wonderful uh, sentiment, the oneness of all existence. Uh, it is wonderful philosophy. Fine. It doesn't work. Why not? He says, because of the wavering, the fickle, the restless nature of the mind. My problem is not with your philosophy of let it be devotion, let it be non-duality, let it be sankhya, whatever it is. Duality, non-duality, devotion, knowledge. But the mind is the problem. Arjuna is, is very practical. He narrows it down to the problematic component in this whole scheme. The mind is the problem. What is the problem with the mind? Listen, Arjuna has understood this whole teaching. Because he uses a key word, Krishna, this yoga you have taught, Samyena Madhusudana, O Krishna, O Madhusudana, the yoga you have taught as Samyena, the one same vision of divinity everywhere. So he has understood what, what is being taught here. He did not say, O Krishna, the meditation you taught as being the calmness of the mind or the cessation of the modifications of the mind, like Patanjali said, he didn't say that.
He didn't say, oh, the yoga you have taught as devotion to you, the Supreme Lord. No, he didn't say that. He says the one, the vision of oneness everywhere, which you are teaching, great, but doesn't work. Why? The mind is fickle. So he points to the, the core problem here. Why is the mind fickle? What is the problem with the mind? Could you explain a little further? And Arjuna does that in the next verse. Chanchalam hi manah krishna pramathi balavadridham etasyaham nigraham manye vayureva sudushkaram What does that mean? The mind is fickle, restless, O Krishna, turbulent, and um, strong, and set in its ways. Trying to control the mind is like as difficult as trying to control the wind. Notice what he has said. Each of these terms he uses has a certain uh, meaning. He's describing the problem. One is it's fickle. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, perceptions, a continuous flow going through the mind. What we call stream of consciousness. Uh, in Vedanta, you will immediately object and say it's, consciousness is not a stream. The mind is a stream. Consciousness is the, the underlying reality, the witness of that. But it is understood. Continuous modifications running through the mind, one after another after another. The mind is like this restless monkey. It's been compared to a monkey, which is restless by nature. Then somebody has made it drink wine. And then a scorpion has stung it. So imagine how the monkey is j jumping around from every... Exactly like the, the, like the mind. Restless. But restless in itself may, need not be such a problem. You know, I'll give you a nice example. Suppose you visit somebody's house in New York with the little apartments. Everybody has a dog. And it might be a cute dog running around restless, shooting around here and there. And the, your host says, I'm sorry, the dog is so restless. It's... You say, no, it's cute. I, I, I like watching it play. It's, let it run around. Let it play. It's its nature. And it's fun to watch. But if it's restless, maybe fun, maybe cute. But then your host tells you, that's not the only problem. It's turbulent. Turbulent means problematic. It chews the, the socks and the slippers and it, uh, it knocks over furniture and it smashes cups and plates and glasses. So it's turbulent, pramadhi. It's not so easy. It's not as cute as, as it looks. Well, why don't you restrain it? Or maybe you can't restrain it. It's very strong. It's not a Pomeranian or, or a Shitsu or something. It's, it's a pit bull or, or a, a Rottweiler. You can't restrain. Maybe it's so strong and so aggressive. You might have to call animal control or 911, call the cops. It's so strong. Balavad. It's powerful. It's the moment you try to restrain the mind in meditation, you see how powerful it is. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Bible, Jesus Christ says that, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Somebody asks how, not to Jesus Christ, but somebody asked later on, that, how do you know that? How do I know whether I'm pure in heart or not? He says, one way, Swami Prabhavanandaji writes in his book, um, Sermon on the Mount According to Vedanta. He says, one way, sit down and try to meditate. Try to think of God. Hmm. Try to pray, try to think of God. For the next two minutes, I will think of God and nothing else. Hmm. Try to do that. Um, very soon you will find it. In 20 seconds, in 30 seconds, other thoughts will start arising in the mind. It will bubble up. The very fact that I cannot hold on to one thought 
for any length of time, for a minute or two minutes or five minutes, it shows that the mind has impurities. It, it is restless. It keeps on generating. What is the nature of these impurities? We'll see later. So, it is strong. It cannot be controlled. Even if you want to control it, it cannot be controlled. Well, maybe it will settle down. Maybe its attention will be diverted. Maybe it will become nice later on. No. He says, it is dhridam. It is set. In its ways, the mind runs in patterns. And those patterns are not easily changed. Unless you work at it, it will remain the same. It will trouble you. It will trouble you continuously. You know, in fact, if you take an extreme example, that of mental illness, it might be easier to understand our, con our condition. Not that we are all mentally ill, but a little bit all of us are. So... <laughs> If you take the case of people who are actually suffering from uh, mental illness, they'll always tell you, uh, after, you know, I understand the mind is an object, I'm the witness of that, but when the storm arises in the mind, it's impossible to control, and also it's impossible to remain at peace. I understand with all the Vedanta and Sankhya and the witnessing and, and the uh, mindfulness meditation, all of that is fine, but when the mind kicks up a storm, um, difficult to remain the witness and difficult not to suffer. Some people have um, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. They cannot help doing a, repeat, a set pattern of activities again and again and again. Even after knowing that this is something set in my brain, in my behavior patterns, I am the unconcerned witness, I am the vast blue sky in which these clouds are floating, floating past. Fine, still disturbing. So it is set in its path, uh, in, in, in its ways, very difficult to control. Hence, your teaching, I understand the philosophy, but it does not become practical, it does not solve my problems, because the mind is playing truant in between. What do I do with this? He has already taught meditation. That meditation is, not, is failing to control the mind. So what is Krishna's answer? And here we must pay attention. Why we must pay attention? A wonderful old Swami long before my time, Swami Bhaskarishwarananda, uh, who established our ashram in Nagpur in India. I met some senior Swamiji's who were trained by this wonderful old Swami. And it seems his, uh, his classes, his Vedanta classes were amazing. Each of them was a spiritual experience. You sit there and your mind is immediately elevated. He was such a wonderful teacher. He was an enlightened uh, soul, obviously. Uh, once somebody complained I think to Swami Shankarananda probably uh, if I remember the story it was very old times 1950s oh the level of spirituality in our monasteries is going down we don't find the same level of spirituality as it was during the direct disciples of Sri Ramakrishna and some senior monk complained and the president of the order said why are you seeing that, saying that? Go to Nagpur where Swami Bhaskarishwanji, that Swami, they used to call him Viprodash Maharaj. When he gives a class, I find the whole ashram vibrating spiritually. So this Swami would teach. Now why am I bringing him here is that I had access to some of the notes taken down during his teachings. And just one example will show you uh, how unique his approach was. So here he is telling young novices, monastic novices, brahmacharis, how to study the Gita. 
and he says remember who is teaching sri krishna is teaching not a pandit not a scholar uh, a, a, a professor not even a, a an ordinary monk not even an enlightened being it is the incarnation of god who is teaching and he has been asked this question which is uppermost in our minds let us hear what god has to say to us that kind of value we, we must give to the words of sri krishna again he would say whenever you study the gita and that that is true for any spiritual text keep your prayojanam vibrating within you all the time the sanskrit word prayojanam means um, your need your purpose why am i here what am i going to gain out of this what do i want out of it i have come here with a purpose if you keep that vibrating in your mind i have come here to go beyond sorrow i have come here to attain enlightenment god realization then imagine the reverence the focus uh, by with which we will take the teachings so you would teach in this way when you study a text you do it like this so let us listen to krishna that way who is teaching sri krishna what is our prayojanam our need our goal here and nothing short of enlightenment what does he say Shri Bhagavan Uvacha, the Blessed Lord said, Ashamshayam Mahabaho Mano Durnigraham Chalam Abhyasena Tukaunteya Vairagena Chagrihyate First he agrees entirely with Arjuna. He says, No doubt you are right. The mind is very difficult to control. So that gives us some peace of mind. That, so it's not a small problem. the lord agrees it is a problem it is something that is a major major problem the mind is difficult to control but then he uses the word mahabaho oh mighty armed one indicating to arjuna you have defeated so many enemies in your time now you are surrendering before your own mind without a fight i am reminded of Uh, about 16 years ago i was in the high himalayas and we used to go to this wonderful old monk a traditional monk who uh, living at that time in an ashram small ashram but he spent most of his time in a cave in the high mountains and he could point out the cave actually from the ashram a little higher up in the mountain you could see there was the cave and this old monk he was a punjabi he was in his 80s at that time complete non dualist so a man after my own heart so i used to go and study the ashtavakra gita which is a, a text of radical non dualism with him and there were a motley group of monks who would sit around him monks and yogis and who knows uh, they were uh, we were a odd bunch some dressed like me some with beards and you know long hair some with shaven heads some stayed in huts some stayed in caves some stay one at least i know stayed in a hole in the ground so we would gather around him and we would study this text of non dual vedanta and this monk he was a, he was quite a character he has passed in the last few years i think yeah i know he has passed he's quite a character he's he used to say uh Oh monks I have committed only one sin in my life you say what it is to start this ashram <laughs> starting this ashram was my only sin i was fine in that cave and then we would say of course not we are getting so much benefit from this you know you are because you are here in this ashram anyway so once he was teaching the ashtavakra gita 
he closed the book and he looked at us sort of in a pensive mood and he said um you have weapons in your hand and the enemy comes and gives you a couple of slaps and you come back weeping where is the fun fun in that o monks in hindi haath mein shastra hain ashtra shastra hain aur dushman se do thappad kha ke rote rote wapas aa gaye kya maza hai mahatma ji so what is the fun in that o monks what are the weapons these are the weapons this understanding this philosophy these techniques which are being taught in these these are the weapons what what is the enemy the enemy is the mind the mind which is uncontrolled the mind which is stopping you from um, realizing uh, god and you're giving up you're coming back weeping it's no good i can't do it so there is a way of uh, of controlling the mind it has to be learned notice a very simple thing for everything else in the world we know it has to be learned um, and we know it takes time and effort and 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 capacity you go to enroll in columbia university for a mathematics or physics degree the moment you enroll the next day you don't say where is my degree why haven't i got it yet i have to give up it's no good <laughs> you don't say that you know you're going to spend years and years and work hard attend classes turn in assignments go through exams and finally write thesis and finally get your degree and that's not the end of the road there are higher degrees to be attained you uh, start a business invest in wall street and why aren't i a millionaire yet nobody says that that's ridiculous uh, so in spiritual life we do that you know i started meditating i have been initiated i've got the mantra I've started meditating but the mind is fickle doesn't calm down so it's no good no it takes time this is the subtlest of all tasks and the greatest of all adventures so it will take time it will take effort and every bit of it is worth it in the end success is guaranteed you are the atman you will realize it what can stop you and once having started this what could be better than this this is the highest endeavor in in life this should become the central task of our life everything else will be there this is the central task of our life and moment to moment you get benefits from it is sitting down in meditation sometimes i say to people who uh, express frustration at not being able to progress in spiritual life i say give it up when i say means senior monks would take this uh, approach it's all right fine doesn't work give it up stop coming to the ashram stop meditating stop reading uh, sacred texts or lives of the saints stop listening to devotional music no 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 i can't do that ah you can't do that which means there's something there that you like something there that you are getting some benefit from some peace of mind some strength from already already most people when they stop and think yes i am not an enlightened i'm not an uh, enlightened being like the buddha or vivekananda but whatever i've got is already valuable to me yeah. uh, this is what makes you turn up on a sunday morning on a cold sunday morning in manhattan so it is worth learning it is worth taking the time to do this not getting impatient about it we had to learn everything everything that is that civilization gives us is not given directly by nature every word that we read every letter that we read had to be taught to us by our primary school teach kindergarten teachers to eat properly to walk to get up and walk on <laughs> on our feet that had to be taught by our parents at least we had to be helped along
by our parents. So all of that has to be taught. And Brahma Vidya, enlightenment about Brahman, doesn't, doesn't it have to be learned? Of course it has to be learned. Of course it will take time. But it takes less time than one might imagine. So what is the advice that Krishna gives? Um, he says, the first thing is, Abhyasa, literally it can be translated as practice, but literally it means repetition. Abhyasa means repetition. What's so great about that? I thought he would give us his guard. He should give us some, some more glamorous and profound technique. All he's saying, repeat. Do it, do it again and do it once more. <laughs> is that all? Now, there is something very important to learn here. There's a very ancient saying in Indian philosophy. Sankhya samam jnanam nasti, yoga samam balam nasti. There is no knowledge like Sankhya and there is no power like yoga. What does Sankhya mean here? The knowledge of the self. Who am I? What am I? That knowledge is the greatest of all knowledge because that really takes us beyond samsara, settles all our needs, takes us beyond suffering. That's the knowledge. But there's something else added to that. Yoga here means this practice which, which develops the mind and enables us to live that knowledge, enables us to manifest that knowledge, act upon it in our day-to-day -day life, respond to the ups and downs of life from that knowledge. Otherwise, what happens is we might feel, I know, but it's a kind of intellectual knowledge. It doesn't help me to face the problems of life. When somebody says something nasty to me, I know it's one undivided divinity, but still it hurts. So that power, inability to manifest or live that knowledge in day-to-day -day life, that inability comes from the lack of that power. And that power is built up by yoga. Alright. What is the essential nature of one word, of that knowledge? And what is the essential nature of this yoga, this power? The essential nature of that knowledge is insight, enlightenment. It is a breakthrough. It is a clear paradigm shift. It's a clear before and after. One sees the world in an entirely new way. It's not so much that one sees new things. But one sees the same things in new, new ways, uh, uh, with new eyes. You see to see old things with new eyes. I'm quoting Ulysses here. You know, to set sail in the new lands and new things. But... After all those adventures in the high seas in foreign lands, to come back once again, to see old things with new eyes. Old things, old people, the same places with new eyes. That's wisdom. So this is a new, complete paradigm shift. I thought this was a fractured world of people and places, time and space, um, limited lives, birth and aging and death. Now I see there is clearly this one underlying divinity this in all beings and all beings are in that and that divinity is beyond sorrow beyond old age and disease and death and and that is the oneness the, the reality of this entire universe in which the entire universe is an appearance like a movie on a screen like reflections in water and i am that limitless radiance that divinity so this is the nature of the shift it actually happens it's not as difficult as one might think one is blessed when that happens. But it's the nature of an insight, of a breakthrough. And for that there is a whole process in Vedanta. Fine. 
but that's a different topic now our topic today is the second one it is what is the essence of yoga if the essence of uh, sankhya of knowledge is that insight that breakthrough that paradigm shift what is the essence of yoga one word repetition repetition training um the difference between these two let me um, tell you swami atma priyananda ji he yeah some of you have seen him and some of you see him on youtube he's a senior monk of our order he was the vice chancellor of our university in india so he told us this story about anecdote about when he became a monk after 10 years of being a novice we are initiated into the vows of sanyasa the president of the order the head of the order gives us the vows of monasticism so during his time which was in when he became a monk was early 80s um long time ago 40 years now huh <laughs> so after that night when you're conferred early in the morning just at sunrise you're conferred whole night there's a ceremony and then there's you're conferred the vows of monasticism next morning you can go the newly minted monks can go to the guru the president of the order and if they have any questions they can ask we did that too, and in his time they also did that so they went at that time the president of the order was swami gambhiranand ji he was the 11th president of our order um extraordinary swami i mean his output literary output is is amazing the translations of the upanishads which we use and i've seen it being used um across the world translations of the commentaries of shankara Uh, of madhusudana on the bhagavad gita 2 years back i was at harvard it was his book which was being used gandhiranjit's book but he was a person who was very grave in fact his name gambhiranand means who delights in graveness <laughs> so he was never actually known to smile if you look at his picture he is a most unsmiling picture very inward <clears throat> and you sit with eyes closed so these newly minted monks went and their spokesperson was none other than our swami atmapriyanand ji and he asked so the swami was sitting there and he said any questions and the atmapriyanand ji said we the brothers we want to know that this mahavakya the statement which we received from you last night aham brahmasmi i am brahman so how many times should we repeat it because that's what we know you know a mantra is to be repeated you get a mantra from a guru it should be repeated swami gambhiranand ji answered <clears throat> it is for not for repetition it is for realization any other question no you can go <laughs> but it's a very important very profound point the difference between jnana and yoga jnana knowledge enlightenment you have to realize i am brahman not repeat it i am brahman i am brahman i am brahman. you can do that but that's not the point <laughs> whereas there are mantras which are for repetition suppose your guru tells you to repeat the mantra of shiva om namah shivaya so what do you do with that you repeat it a thousand times in the morning a thousand times in the evening 10000 times a day somebody asked the holy mother holy mother herself she said people keep asking me i have no peace of mind i have taken the mantra initiation but i have no peace of mind yet and she says they won't do anything and they keep on complaining and let them repeat the mantra 10000 times a day then i'll see where there is no peace of mind let me see so repetition mananatrayate definition of mantra 
that by which you dwell on it, it saves you. It takes you across samsara. The power of a mantra comes from repetition. But a Mahavakya like Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman, Tattvamasi, that thou art, that comes from the enlightenment, that comes from the awakening into that, into that reality. And both are necessary. Uh, from an Advaitic perspective, of course, the highest thing is the realization, I am Brahman. But the other part of it, as I said, all the other components, meditation, devotion, moral life, all go towards establishing a foundation. With a, with a restless mind, with an impure mind, with a selfish, selfish attitude, one cannot become, I am Brahman. No, won't work. Such a person, even if they work hard at Vedanta and trying to understand, you know what will happen at the end? They will say, I got it. I've read all the books. I understand all the arguments. But it's sort of, if they're honest, they'll say it's sort of intellectual, speculative. It's some idea that I've got. It's a cool philosophy I've learned. I'm still the same person. So the ability to manifest this knowledge, uh, it comes from the repetition. Jonathan Haidt, who is right here, He's a, a psychologist in the Stern School of uh, Business here. Uh, he is, uh, I was seeing his biography, uh, he is recognized as one of the 25 most influential psychologists today in the world. So his masterpiece, long ago he wrote this book, The Happiness Hypothesis. I read it long ago, I was very impressed. Um, there he makes a very important point. He asks the question, why is it so difficult to change? We have so much knowledge now. And the, if you go to Barnes and Nobles, he mentions that. All these self-help books, personality development, all these self-help books, go to Barnes and Nobles, you will see racks and racks full of self-help books. How to develop a great personality, how to communicate more effectively, how to impress people, how to, how to lose weight, uh, how to, uh, what else? Uh, how to meditate better, uh, what we are talking about today, all these things and many more things uh, are all there. But, and people go and buy whole loads of them. But he asked the question, uh, do they deliver? Uh, are our lives significantly changed? Almost always the answer is no. All it changes is our bank balance. It changes, goes down a little bit and we run out of racks to put books in. Uh, so it keeps on increasing and overflowing. But really, are we changing? Are we developing all those wonderful capacities talked about in those self-help books? And by the way, the self-help books, some of them are a little uh, way out there, but many of them are pretty reasonable. They're pretty good, actually. They are not lying to you. Some of it is anecdotal, but increasingly with the development of positive psychology. It's pretty rigorous academics also. Now, uh, when Dale Carnegie and others wrote, it was anecdotal, inspirational. But now it's a matter of academic uh, psychology. So it's not wrong. But why doesn't it work? Jonathan Haidt asked that question. Why doesn't it work? Why doesn't it change our lives? Why is it so difficult to change? He says it's because what it does not address is the structure of the mind. Our mind has the structure. He uses a very beautiful Indian uh, analogy. He says it's like an um, elephant with a mahut. You understand what a mahut is? The one who sits on the top of the elephant and controls the elephant? So elephant with a mahut. The mahut is the intellect. And the intellect, the mahut knows where to go and can tell the elephant where to go. And uh, 
just like the intellect it it understands but the problem with that is as long as the elephant obeys it's fine but if the elephant does not obey the mouth wants to go this way and then there but the elephant wants to go this way and then there then <laughs> there's nothing that the mouth can do to the elephant because the elephant is much much stronger than the mouth if the elephant wants to go there and raid a shop and eat the bananas there or <laughs> attack a um, banana plant or something and eat the bananas there the mouth can't do anything because the elephant is much more stronger physically it's just like that our intellect which buys all those we buy all those books from barnes and nobles and listen to ted talks and then we decide these are great ideas i am going to revolutionize my life i have taken the what tony robin robins seminar i don't know how many hundred dollars it is several hundred dollars i think i'm going to revolutionize my life and by the way i'm not criticizing any of that all of that is right they're correct they're not lying to you but it doesn't work why because i am sold on it but who's the i who loves these ideas who's inspired by them who's who has this wow moment it's the intellect but underneath the intellect is the lower mind the emotions and the the uh, more than the emotions the set patterns of a lifetime of many lifetimes and then there is the body the physiology i decide i realize one of the keys to success and happiness in life is getting up early in the morning i have to rise with the sun monks in the himalayas are very clear about these things they say they have sayings like the one who does not greet the rising sun knowledge of brahman will not rise in his life <laughs> you sleep there are funny stories like oh i get up with the first ray of sunlight in my room or oh, really that's pretty good um so when do you get up 5 o'clock or 5:30 he, he says uh, no uh, my room faces the west <laughs> not that way i'm i'm determined to get up early in the morning early in the morning i get up i, I have the alarm rings i wake up but then what happens it's cold it's so comfy under the blanket and i want to get up but then the body says i didn't sign up for this you the intellect you thought it was a great idea did you ask me you go and get up and do your meditation and yoga i'm going to sleep in, <laughs> inside the blanket can the intellect do anything by itself no it it cannot force the body also it gives in and that's why every kind of practice which leads to difficulties it comes from our lower nature which has not signed up for that which does not respond to um, to knowledge and insights and lectures and seminars and books and philosophy no what does the elephant respond to what does the mahut do for the elephant it trains the elephant the mouth doesn't persuade the elephant the mouth doesn't give a ted talk to the elephant the mouth doesn't sign up the elephant for a tony robbins seminar no it doesn't send it to hr programs no it trains the elephant and training is mostly systematic repetition the body mind responds to repetition so repetition abhyasa somebody asked sri ramakrishna the same question uh, i um, my um, mind doesn't settle down sri ramakrishna seems startled he said shiki obhyas jog karo what are you saying why don't you practice the yoga of abhyasa 
There's nothing more than the yoga of repetition. So, repetition, regular meditation, uh, is it will work. Over time, it is learned and it clearly changes the nature of the mind. You will see it becoming more uh, obedient, more subdued, more... Uh, it begins to flow. A new pattern is set. A time comes when it becomes natural. Sri Ramakrishna gives a beautiful example. He lived on the bank of the Ganges, the Ganga River. And you see these little boats plying. And you would see how the boatman would take a long bamboo pole and work hard at pushing the boat away from the bank into the midstream. But once it reaches the midstream and catches the current, he says the boatman would sit down, just hold on the rudder and would take out a, uh, you know, like a hubble bubble and smoke tobacco and merrily sail along on the current. But until it catches the current, he has to work hard to push the boat into it. So uh, the current of spiritual life means when it becomes natural to us. Uh, when, you, uh, when the mind is now set in the new pattern. Then you, you don't have to work so hard all the time. But initially, yes. That is abhyasa. It will work. But not by itself. Here is the, another part of it. Vairagyena grihyate. The mind comes under control by vairagya. Vairagya means dispassion. And I must stress this. You see, it is um, a problem, a symptom of our secular, rather materialistic age, where here in the United States, for example, meditation is quite popular. But the dispassion side of it is never taught. The dispassion for worldliness, going beyond worldly desires. That is essential to meditation. That part is not emphasized at all. Perhaps it's not popular. Perhaps it's not palatable. All sorts of meditation techniques have been popularized. Mindfulness is very big now. But notice, whether it's mindfulness, vipassana, whether it's Tibetan Buddhist meditation techniques, whether it is yoga, kundalini yoga, uh, non-dualistic meditation, Whatever kind of meditation, if you look back upon the origins of all of them, they came from the high spiritual traditions, all of which emphasized a dispassion for worldliness, a detachment from the world. Not just Buddhism or Advaita Vedanta, every religion does that, if you're honest about it. Maybe not the modern versions of those religions, but if you go back to the original texts, absolutely. What teaches more dispassion? Then the New Testament, the Gospel of uh, Jesus. Dispassion for the world. So, dispassion, it's called vairagyam. Uh, viraga. Raga means likes and dislikes. Raga, dvesha, both are meant. Likes and dislikes, they color the mind. Any kind of strong pull towards the world, that is raga. I was amazed to read Freud, the wise old atheist, but he's pretty wise. Uh, I remember many years ago, it was nearly 20 years ago, in our teacher training college, teacher education college in India, in, near our monastery, where school teachers were trained. So there was a department of psychology, educational psychology. And uh, we had pictures of uh, Freud and Jung and other, other well-known, uh, John Dewey, our American father of modern American education, uh, William James and others. So Freud has this little beard like this. Now, in that room, 
we had the annual Saraswati Puja, the worship of the Divine Mother Saraswati, a goddess of learning. So the image was there. And people from the locality would come and bow down to the image. So this little old lady comes to bow down to the image of Saraswati. And there are these pictures of the psychologists. She's standing before Freud like this. <laughs> and I went and she asked me, I was walking past her. <laughs> I'll tell you in Bengali and translate. She said, Baba, a kon rishi? <laughs> My boy, who, I was a young novice, he said, who, who, which rishi, which, which sage is this? She would have been shocked at what Freud taught, but, but it's true. He is a rishi in a certain way. The people who have insights, in, deep insights into human nature are rishis. So, his insight. When you talk about Freud, talking about libido, we think of, uh, about uh, you know, the baser passions of human nature. But look at the definition of libido. He says, any movement of the subject to the object is libido. Any movement from here to outside, anything outside, is a manifestation of that same energy. This is raga, which will not allow you to remain centered. It can start as a mild attraction, something nice and pleasant. It can develop into a desire, I want it. It can go into the level of an obsession, an addiction. It will not allow you to remain centered. Raga. Um, Swami Ashokanandaji, in a very nice essay, he say, about monks, he says, when are you ready to renounce the world? When can you become a monk? He says something interesting. He says that if, if you stay in the midst of the world and people and objects of the senses of things of the world, your mind may be attracted, disturbed by that. But if you stay away from them in a monastery, in an ashram, in a retreat, then your mind is at peace. You don't hanker about it, you don't think about those things at all. Then you are ready to be a monk. If you stay away from the world and things and uh, you stay in an ashram and yet think about those things, then you are not ready to be a monk. It will fail. It won't work. Uh, and those whose minds are steady and serene in the midst of the world and in an ashram, they don't need any monasticism. They are above it already. There are very few. They are, but there are such people. There are very few such people. So, you have to be in that middle category. The same thing is true of meditation. When can you meditate effectively? It is when the raga, the attractions, the pulls of the world, the things of the world, don't continuously pull your mind outwards. If you sit quietly in a meditation hall, uh, in your little personal chapel or shrine, in a holy place, quietly sit there. If your mind is more or less stable, more or less, it may be restless, but more or less, then you can meditate. If it's continuously pulled out, you cannot. There is raga. The things of the world which pull us, the obsessions, the attractions, the thing that this is nice, I must have this. And equally true, the dvesha, the repulsions. It is a whole range, just as raga is a range, um, the different kinds of raga. I want more and more money and property, and, that is greed. I want pleasures of the senses. From uh, eating good food to all kinds of sense pleasures. That is karma. Uh -huh. There are various kinds of, of raga, attraction for the world. Dvesha, repulsion for the world. 
for people and things. It can be a whole range. It can be a minor irritation, a minor dislike to a general dislike of a place, a person, a food, uh, an activity, a job, all of these. But general, a clear dislike. I don't like this. You might say, what's wrong with that? It is based on a false uh, notion of the world. If it is true that it is the one divinity underlying everything, you can see the good and the bad, but underlying you must have serenity because ultimately it's the one divinity. Notice, when you are watching a movie, you root for the success of the hero, you hate the villain, and yet at the same time you're serene because you know there's no hero and villain there. It's fiction. It's an appearance of one reality. A couple of years back at, uh, at Harvard, a student, divinity student said, I don't like your Vedanta philosophy. It tells me that Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler are the same. How can Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa be the same? I said, it doesn't. First of all, it doesn't tell you that Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa are the same. It doesn't. Um, uh, it is much better to be a saint than to be a monster. Uh, but consider, are they really all that different? When they were little babies two or three years old, was Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, was Adolf Hitler, Adolf Hitler? No. Every night when they fall asleep, deep sleep, even the personalities are erased for the time being, that being who is in deep sleep at that moment, is this being evil and this, this being good, saintly? No. There is a layer in which goodness and badness are there. The layer is the mind, the personality. If you take the mind and personality to be the ultimate reality, then yes, this is ultimately a saint, that's ultimately a monster. But no, that's not the ultimate reality. Anything that has developed over time, that is conditioned by causes and effects, that is subject to change, cannot be the ultimate reality. Neither saintliness nor um, what monsterliness, a monstrosity. <laughs> they are the <laughs> ultimate reality. Yeah. But yes, at that level they are not the same. You have to move from uh, adharma to dharma and beyond that. From uh, evil to morality and ethics and rise to spirituality. Uh, so they are not equivalent, but beyond that there is a, the reality lies beyond all of these. That's what Advaita Vedanta says. So dvesha, dvesha also disturbs the mind. Some people make a habit of enmity, of dislike of others. And holding on to anger and resentment. You cannot meditate if it's like that. And it's unwise. I'm quite sure your indignation is justified. I'm quite sure people have treated you badly. But it is unwise to cultivate these fires. When you set a fire, you burn your own house before you burn somebody else. You set a, what, is, uh, what is resentment? What is anger? It is here. I am the person who is resentful of others who may have. Um, uh, misbehaved with you, um, you know, mistreated you, quite correct. But first I make myself unhappy. So that kind of mind cannot meditate. Raga and Dvesha, neither can meditate. Sri Ramakrishna told the story of the boatmen who were rowing a boat. The three, not boatmen, there were three friends who were drunkards. At night they stumbled around and they wanted to go home across the river. They found a boat, jumped into it and started rowing. As the day broke early morning, they found they were still in the same place, rowing hard. All night long they rowed. What happened? They would forgotten to untie the boat. That forgetting to untie the boat, that is Raga and Dvesha. 
vairagya dispassion for the world is untying the boat it's letting go doesn't matter doesn't mean that you won't do your duties in the world you won't take care of people you will you will but your motto will be neither seek nor avoid seeking and avoiding comes from raga and dvesha attraction and repulsion neither seek nor avoid as far as the world is concerned why because there is some higher thing that you are about to do you are on the journey to enlightenment self realization god realization whatever you call it so vairagya is important complete dispassion for the world and its events at this point let me just uh, give some practical points you know so far i have said what krishna said meditation is possible if you have a regular program of repetition abhyasa and dispassion for the world untie your boat don't be like those drunkards untie your boat um but um oh before that just one more point you know when they say that uh, all this giving up the world sitting quietly meditating it's repression and it can lead to mental instability huh. it does sometimes why does it why does that happen it's because vairagya is not there when does it lead to um mental problems that firmly cutting away the world sitting quietly and meditating trying to meditate for long hours it's only when there is a strong outward movement and i'm denying that and i'm shutting it down and trying to hold it down within myself then it leads to a reaction in the mind my tendency is to want things and chase after things and to achieve things in the world i'm stopping myself from doing that in the name of spirituality and that leads to a revolt in the mind krishna has already said that in the gita he says mithyachara sauchyate the one who sits withdrawing from action sitting quietly in a meditative posture closing the eyes shutting out the contact with the world and thinking of the world in the mind that one he says mithyachara sauchyate that one is called a hypocrite then what is the way out if i am then don't give so much emphasis on meditation do your regular meditation but engage in karma yoga i'll tell you what is to be done practically to purify the mind one monk in uttarakhand put said nicely he said samadhi to aasan hai mahatma ji shart hai ki aap chitt shuddh hona chahiye aapko 1 minute mein samadhi laga denge what does it mean samadhi the highest state of meditative absorption is is very easy mahatma ji oh monk i'll give you samadhi in 1 minute how so the condition is your mind must be purified purified of raga and dvesha this continuous embroilment in the world in the mental level all right now some practical advice this i have taken from swami ashokananda ji very beautiful before you sit in meditation i mentioned it at other times but i'll quickly run through this uh, practical advice for good meditation what do you do one you do it regularly you see abhyas repetition again do it regularly not when the mood seizes you not when you feel very spiritual not when you are on a meditation retreat only do it every day second have a fixed time so sometime in the early morning sometime in the evening or night if you are too busy some do it three times a day 
early morning afternoon and night so fixed time the mind is a creature of habit remember the elephant the elephant is a creature of habit not of intellect it responds to training it responds to rhythm so time have a fixed place that's why we have meditation halls and temples and churches and um, you know um, shrines and chapels uh, that's because that's why we have a particular seat for meditation an asana that's why we have even in india they say you have a special set of clothes which you wear before meditation your one set a clean same kind of clothes but a clean separate cl- set set aside for meditation why all of that helps the mind again a creature of habit and repetition it immediately tells the mind this is the time when you must be calm and turn inwards uh, when you must follow the mantra follow the breath visualize the deity whatever your technique so these are these things will work for any technique of meditation in any tradition fixed time fixed place mm-hmm. which the mind immediately associates with uh, meditation you see half your work is done there do not dwell on thoughts which are disturbing i cannot emphasize this enough do not dwell on what you might call bad thoughts it could be thoughts of um, you know which old thoughts of guilt anger resentment negativity um, sensuousness um anxieties all kinds of negativities the mind has a habit of dwelling on these things try not to do that replace it immediately there is a very good thing a way of handling the mind is a secret of the mind is it can dwell on only one thing at a time you might think it's a very what's important about this it's a very important thing to know in order to handle the mind is if the mind can handle only one thing at a time it does so very quickly that's why we think the mind is doing many things it does very quickly one thing at a time in that case if you want to handle the mind very effectively immediately try this give it something practical to do it's even good if you do it something physically you know get up clean the room do a chore something go for a walk so if you do that the mind will stop it it has to be engaged listen to a song or go and meet somebody in conversation so that you can't mind cannot run elsewhere it can do only one thing at a time so do not dwell on thoughts which are negative Uh, the whole range of negative thoughts negative company bad company there are people and places uh, which arouse uh, likes this raga and dvesha obsessions and hatreds of the uh, which are worldly in nature so don't uh, mix with them uh, some sri ramakrishna would say that a little plant that you have a seedling that you have planted on the roadside it needs to be protected by a little fence otherwise he said the goats and cows in india in the roads you'll see goats and cows walking around so they'll come and eat it up so you need to fence it once it grows and becomes a huge big tree he says you can tie an elephant to it we're having a lot of elephants in today's talk he says you can tie an elephant to it nothing will happen but initially you must fence it around so bad company be be uh, clear about whose company you want to keep it has an effect on our mind then um, the next thing is to practice some amount of asceticism by that i don't mean become a monk a simple life few possessions few activities as i said neither seek nor avoid few activities few possessions a minimalistic life um 
positions, for example, the more we have cluttered room, cluttered positions, a lifetime's accumulation of things, our mind is on those things also. Normally, we don't realize it. You sit for meditation, you'll realize. Half of your mind is scattered in things. Uh, so an ascetic lifestyle. And then, the next thing Swami Ashokanji says is, have this sense of vastness. This entire, this is the immensity of space, vast mountains and um, oceans, lands beyond the horizon, and beyond that the universe so vast, and yet it is all appearing to you and playing around in you, the consciousness. You are vaster than space itself. Eternity, the vast periods of time, millions of years, billions of years. Think about one lifetime, 80, 90 years, seems to be very long. It's like gone in a twinkling of, a, of an eye. In our own experience, if you are um, 20 years old or like Bill, you are 97 years old, I'm sure if you ask him, if he sits for a moment, he can recall his whole life you know, in general in a twinkle of an, um, in an instant. It has passed. 97 years have passed. As 97 years is a twinkle to you, twinkling um, in an instant to you, the consciousness, so is a million years, so is a billion years. You are vaster than the eternities of time, vaster than the immensities of space. Have this feeling within you. What Vedanta is telling me, that is my real nature. I am vast, not this limited creature only. This will give stability to the mind. Have a yearning for enlightenment. Here devotion or bhakti is very useful. The yearning for limitless existence, consciousness, bliss is a bit dry, philosophical. But yearning, that can happen. Some natures have that. Um, yearning for freedom, spiritual freedom. But yearning for a personal God is easy to cultivate. My Rama, my Krishna, my Jesus, you know, my Rama Krishna. That love. So have a yearning. Yearning also stabilizes the mind. Just as thinking of things in the world outside can pull our mind outside. Similarly, thinking of God and loving God can pull the mind towards God. So yearning is very important for uh, meditation, good meditation. The next, the activities in the world, let us spiritualize it as much as possible. The job, the family, the chores in the house, my own personal affairs like health and everything can be offered as a worship of God. Not just the flowers which we put in the shrine, the incense, but also our daily activities can be offered. As we spiritualize our daily activities, a little bit of ritualism can be useful here. It elevates, you know, if you do a puja, mindfully a short puja, it actually spiritualizes the mind. It develops the quality known as sattva. I have run out of time, but I must say this. I mentioned Jonathan Haidt, his book Happiness Hypothesis. One reason I remember it was, he did this experiment, do rituals work, religious rituals. Do they actually do anything to the mind? And he mentions it. He says that he went to Orissa, Bhuvaneshwar, which is on the eastern coast of India. And I like that very much because that's where I grew up. <laughs> so he says he went there. And he went to the, there are very ancient temples there. I mean, temple older than a thousand years of the commonality there in, in, that, in that town, in that city. 
It's in fact known as the city of temples. So the famous temples of Lingaraj, which is the temple of Shiva, um, there are sacred pools of water outside, Bindu Sagar. Uh, so the priests in the temple, before they go in for worshipping the deities, they take a dip in those pools and they recite mantras and they come out. Now what he did was, he conducted the psychological tests, like a, a questionnaire, a battery of questions. He gave those tests to the priests before the rituals and after they performed the rituals. General questions about life and person, personality and all of that. And he says there was a significant difference. The, after the rituals, the thought patterns changed, at least for a while. And the feelings about themselves, the world and others. So clearly those rituals have an immediate effect on the mind. may not last very long, but if you do it repeatedly throughout your lifetime, they have an effect and they elevate the mind. So a little bit of ritualism, whatever your tradition uh, allows you, whatever you do in it, don't do too much. Ritualism is like weeds, tends to overcome and cover metaphysics and meditation and uh, devotion. All of it is becomes, especially for the Hindu mind, we are very ritualistic. So it tends to overgrow everything else. The garden just becomes a garden of uh, rituals, of weeds. Um, so rituals, a little bit of rituals, very helpful. And finally, holy company. And the company of people who are meditators, who are genuinely devotional, spiritual, uh, their company. What did I say? Let me run through it quickly. I hope I remember the list. Ten things. Ashokanji has mentioned. So I've summarized a long essay in these 10 points. One, meditate regularly. Two, have a fixed time. Three, have a fixed place. Uh, four, avoid bad thoughts. Five, avoid bad company. Six, um, practice a little bit of asceticism. Seven, cultivate vastness, infinity, eternity. Uh, eight, yearning for God. Not desire for the world, yearning for God. Nine, spiritualize daily activities, little bit of ritualism also. And ten, seek holy company. Good. I'm patting myself on the back. <laughs> I remembered all ten. The thing is to do them. With this kind of a preparation, meditation becomes deep. So this um, section is very beautiful where Arjuna being ever being the practical warrior, he's a Kshatriya, the warrior, and uh, he has a very practical question. All these wonderful philosophies, belief in God, devotion, non-dualism, all those are wonderful. But they all depend on the mind. How do I make the mind amenable to all of that? Do all of that? And Krishna answers, practice, repetition, vairagya, dispassion for the world. Abhyasa, vairagya. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Raparnamastu